I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. And welcome to a special little bonus episode of Show Your Work. Guys, I'm on a beach. I'm not. I'm not really. (laughs) but I will be. And so we wanted you guys to have something delicious to listen to. In the meantime, we will be back next week with a full show your work. But in the meantime, please absorb this nugget of awesome that you sent into my inbox um, that we had to rejig all our plans because it was so important to talk about. Well, we're writers. Many of you are writers. But even if you don't think you do writing professionally, Many of you write. And so we wanted to have a dedicated bonus episode about writing, about the process of writing, Um, maybe about writing hacks. I mean, here's the thing. The best writing in any measure, whether it's books or long-form articles in The Economist, is effortless, right? It seems to be effortless, even though we know intellectually that it takes a ton of work to do. So what I loved about the article that you sent me is that it breaks down the work of arguably what is supposed to look like the most effortless work of all, the most effortless writing of all, writing jokes. Well, it's a great takeoff piece. And this is why we wanted to do a dedicated episode taking off from this piece because writing, whether or not you're doing it for late night shows, yourself, For your boss to deliver a presentation at the annual general meeting, it can be very specific, but we all share universal stresses. So this is breaking down the work of Lori Kilmartin, who is a stand-up who performs frequently on Conan, but who also is one of the show's writers. And we should shout out Vulture because... Much of this interview comes from her appearance on Vulture's Good One podcast, and she talks about her own stand-up, and she talks about being on staff of Conan's show and being responsible for some of the jokes in his monologue. Right. So I wanted to approach this because you have much more experience writing on shows live Mm -hmm. shows, award shows you've written for, uh, scripted shows. You have more experience, I would say, writing for other people, whether or not that's for characters, for actors who must play those characters, and also, again, for hosts who are, you know, hosting whatever. Absolutely. So what she said, what was the first thing I hit on was, She talks about, or she's asked about, you know, how many jokes do you write per monologue? And like, you know, what do you do when uh, the monologue is just about to be delivered? And she kind of, and I'm paraphrasing, but the way I read it was, Lori kind of stands to the side, maybe off stage, behind the curtain, I imagine. And she sees, she waits and listens to Conan's entire monologue to see 
how many of her jokes make it in. Yeah. Right? Yes. So are you like, is that a glimmer of recognition for you? Yeah, it was. And as with most of the people that we talk about, it was a glimmer of, oh, this is somebody who does the work. Because here's the thing. If you're hovering to the side of the stage, waiting to see if your jokes got in, it's not just hubris. Like, oh, did he pick mine? It's which did he pick? Did they work? What if he picked three and they didn't work? It's all the time watching and learning. You know, it used to be really popular for actors to say back in the day, oh, I don't watch myself. I can't do it. Yeah. And I think that it is kind of a foolish thing to say because how can you know if you're doing well if you're not checking on what you're doing? And, you know, maybe arguably the answer is, oh, the director will tell you if you're an actor or whatever. Comedians have to rely on themselves, right? Right. On themselves and on the audience. If they bomb, the audience isn't going to give them corrective notes Mm -hmm. afterwards. So they have to be watching and listening to their jokes. So I thought that was really great and made sense to me for sure. But I do want to get back to the hubris of it because Mm -hmm. like, you know, writing is difficult. Oftentimes you do it alone. Mm -hmm. And so she's out there every day. She's restarting every day. She's because what I'm presuming Conan five days a week, right? So you're doing like… I For some reason, I think it's four, but okay. yes. Yeah, not Friday. It's a know? lot. Yes. And so you're out there, you're resetting every day, and she's still like paying attention to how many? Two is it today? Three is it today? And clearly, it must be something she's still super into because that feeling of yes, when the joke does make it in, that's a legitimate temper. Like, that's what keeps you coming back the next day, No. Absolutely. It goes back to something we've talked about, about at-bats. If you have so many at-bats, every night you have a chance to get it back. And if every time a joke is in the monologue and wins and gets a laugh, um, that's a little brick to get you up over the wall a bit more the next day. She talks about how every single day she has to submit 20 jokes for the opening monologue. Right. 20. Mm-hmm. And let's say for the sake of argument that she's one of six or eight writers doing the same thing. Yeah. So that means that my math is about to fail me, but that he has somewhere between 120 and 160 jokes to pull from. Right. To make his opening monologue. So if you think about it from that perspective, if three of your jokes get in, that's a big deal. Yeah. That's huge. You would want to watch and see, okay, this one worked, this one didn't. This one I was sure was going to be the the big banger ender of the monologue, it didn't go there, it didn't land. That's an education every single day. So let's go back, because before we get to the real world application, let's go back to the mechanics of this. So mm-hmm. six to eight staff writers submitting 20 jokes each, all distilled down to if it's a good day, you get two or three in the monologue. But let's say. you're Conan and you are, um, I'm assuming there's a head writer too, right? I would assume so. Okay, so Conan and the head writer then... Uh, collect the 20 jokes from each of the six to eight writers, and then talk to me, walk me through the process then of compiling it and then merging it all together into the monologue. So here's what's the most interesting thing. And this is where you know this as well. And all of you who are listening know this. When it's somebody who has their face out in front of the world, it has to be something that they are feeling or it won't land. When we met 
decades ago and you and I were working together and I was a producer when you're on air, I could say to you, say this or say that. And you would say whatever I would ask you to, but if it's not authentic, if the person presenting it doesn't believe what they're saying or understand why they're saying it, it's not going to come out as well, right? Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about when you're talking about Conan and the head writer getting together, you're talking about, does he feel like saying that today? Does he want to do a joke about marriages breaking up if he had a terrible fight with his wife at home? No? Okay, that one struck, even though it might have been the best one of the hundred jokes on the page. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Is it... Is there too much fatigue uh, on talking about whatever? Yeah. Trump, abortion, whatever you decide. Did he just see Colbert or uh, Colin Jost on Saturday Night Live do a joke about this topic and he doesn't think he can top it or deliver the joke in the right way? Right. Gone. Gone. Then all of this is also happening at a breakneck pace, Mm -hmm. right? Because, of course, we're talking about a show that tapes not quite live, but live to tape, which means that once the tape is rolling, the show is essentially happening. Nobody's stopping. You're not going back and taking things again unless there's a really enormous reason to do so. So she talks about, and I think this is probably what you're getting at, that the most important thing for a writer is to get into the voice of your deliverer, right? Whether that's your host, your actor, your character, It's all very well if you would say that yourself and it would be super funny, Um, but it has to also go through the filter of the person who's talking. Mm -hmm. If I'm writing for you, I have to write for your delivery system and the emphasis that you put on certain jokes and sardonic tones and things. And it changes for each person you write for. It's It's a big deal and I love how intricately it's broken down here. So... In scripted writing, yes. which is most of your work now. Mm, absolutely. Are you, when you're writing dialogue, mm-hmm. are you, so of course you're writing something that the character would say, but in your mind, are you like imagining how the actor would deliver it? When I'm writing scripted, and I think this is true of most people who write scripted, I am almost playing all the roles myself. I go into kind of a fugue state where I'm like, okay, now I'm being, uh, you know, the spurned housewife is one thing that's kind of easy. Maybe I'm being the surly cop. Maybe that's not so easy. Or sometimes it is kind of surprisingly easy. I wrote a scene today with two kind of bros, kind of clueless uh, rugby shirt wearing executives bantering back and forth. And it was super fun because I could hear those voices in my head for sure. Right. But to my mind, they are imaginary people in my head. I'm not thinking about actors at that point when Mm -hmm. I'm making it up from scratch. Um, I'm thinking about how I want those characters to come to life. And I think it works when you really believe that you have those voices. If you don't have the voice of a particular character, it hurts the whole way through. Once you're doing something where there are actors involved, yeah. once you know I have this voice or that voice, then you can do stuff like, oh, you know, the last time we gave them a joke like this or that, right. it really landed. Let's try this. Let's right. try to do that. Um, and you want to do that without also 
always relying on that same thing, as I'm sure happens to you. I'm sure sometimes your producers say, why don't you do that thing again? You're like, Mm. I did that thing the last six weeks. I'm tired. So it's always about treating the people who are working with your words as, you know, beings who are working with you and not meat puppets who just say your words. Because I think that way leads to disappointment. I, when I think about writing for people, writing dialogue in any of its forms, um, the reason why I think this is more universal uh, than, you know, than it might seem on the surface with this article in particular is because one of my favorite things to do during the Obama administration was reading articles from him or his speechwriters about his speeches. I'm oh, sure you yes. you got um, into this too, right? Oh, for sure. And so, um, I mean, it's I think it's very well known that Obama was the architect of many of his own speeches, but they started in draft form. Like he would sit down with his speechwriters, with his staff, and he would be like, hey, for this whatever speech I'm going to give, I really want to touch on these things. So can you go back and, you know, pull some facts for me, the research, whatever, and start with the first draft? I mean, there are lots of articles out there that walk you through what happens between the first draft and what he marks up and then the work he puts into it. But I've always been fascinated by that kind of writing And um, I used to do a little bit of that when I worked in fund development in social work because at the University of British Columbia, I was on the team that worked directly with the president of the university in developing her asks. And some of her events, um, she was required to speak. You know, she, if she was hosting a fundraiser, she'd have to get up and she'd have to be like, thanks for coming. And I would have to write for her. Um, or at least put together some notes for her to change and draft and move around. So it is a very specific kind of writing that in business happens more often than not. Well, you know, it does. And it's interesting because there's so much cross-pollination as you talk about, cross-skilling, uh, I suppose. How did you feel when she would rework your work or not? Always the notes would be good. Like, I was in my 20s then. Mm -hmm. It was a great job for me to actually develop technical writing skills because all of that is technical writing, from the grammar to the punctuation. I was writing on behalf of the president of an academic institution. So it had to be impeccable. It had to be impeccable. And, um, you know, again, it had to be technical. I was taking a lot of research that was coming out of the faculties and putting into her briefing notes and then putting into her speaking notes. So... Yeah, it was a great, great training ground. I mean, is it anything like the Obama speechwriters? No. I mean, that said, really, really great training for me. But here's the thing about the Obama speechwriters, and I love that you brought this up because, of course, you know what they do now, right? Oh, yeah. They are… They're doing what we're doing. They they work in TV. It is not an accident uh, or TV or film or entertainment. And podcasting. Um, You know, uh, John Favreau, one of his speechwriters, arguably the most famous and the youngest. He was like meant to be basically a teenager when he was writing for somebody who was basically a gifted speaker. Right. uh, Now works with Cracked Media and uh, has talked about other, uh, other kind of 
comedy things. He writes for the Daily Beast and things of that nature. Uh, John Lovett, another one of Obama's speechwriters, uh, is he wrote on uh, the newsroom and also, uh, yeah, Pod Save America, of course, and Love It or Leave It, which are his podcasts. Um, I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that you go from communicating in the most high-level way, the way that you were talking about, for somebody whose language is meant to be impeccable and clear, um, and then you go into jobs later on where you're like, well, now I have this real skill, not that they're the funniest, although I'm sure they are, or the smartest, although I'm sure they are, but what you become is a really excellent mimic. When you write for other people at a moment's notice, you become a really, really excellent mimic and you learn to tune into the different kind of frequencies in your head Mm -hmm. for different people. And I think that's certainly what they're capitalizing on here, that, you know, a speech for an Obama is different than a speech for one of them wrote for for, uh, John Kerry and that kind of thing. And that writing for Conan is different, as Laurie Kilmartin points out, than writing for herself, yeah. right? For her own comedy. Yeah. Um, that she's doing it differently. But once you kind of have that skill where you tune into those voices, it's hard to turn off. Um, and I humbly, not humbly, think that I'm a good mimic, not because of how well I write scripts, uh, although maybe, but because of how much I can make you and all our friends laugh when I imitate our other friends. Right. I am a good mimic Mm -hmm. because it is about once you kind of hear, oh, this person's frequency is up high or this person is in the back of their throat, then you realize not just how they sound, but the word choices that they make. And it makes it really, really uh, resonant. And that makes it sexy. Like this is the work that looks so easy. I love watching Saturday Night Live always because I think the work of changing into all those different characters is not just, oh, now I'm going to put on a wig, but of so much careful observation. If you see Cecily Strong or Kate McKinnon doing something from court TV or uh, some political figure, it's because they have studied and listened and gotten it into their DNA. So to get back to your first question, Laurie Kilmartin standing at the side of the stage is also getting his voice and his cadence and his delivery into her DNA. And it doesn't mean that it's easy. I mean, as you said, it looks easy. It's fucking hard. It's super hard. And what I took away even more from this um, interview was there's a link to a tweet Mm -hmm. that she posted back in April And here's her caption to the tweet. It's a photo of essentially a sheet of paper or a document with a lot of words on it. And here's what it is. Hey, aspiring comedy writers, when my brain is foggy or I just need multiple punchlines for the same setup, sometimes I consult my transitions list. It's dumb, but it helps. Now, before you continue, I'm going to set you a challenge. All of these transitions are ones that you will hear. Once you hear them, you're going to know what they are. They're like every monologue or news comedy broadcast that you've heard, all these phrases. So I'm going to challenge you to deliver them in joke form. Okay. Okay. So there's the setup, which is, I'll give you the opening line, which is, 
Studies show that students are studying less than ever before for their final exams. Oh, am I, sorry, am I picking one from here? Yeah, you pick one and okay. deliver it in joke format, right? So here's yeah. your, your setup again is, uh, I'll okay. make it a little better. Studies show that hospitals are more overcrowded than ever. Which explains why today I stubbed my toe and now it's the size of my nose. Or hospitals are more crowded than ever. Apparently, that means that I can stub my toe and it's the size of my nose. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, there are probably over a hundred transitions here. There's a, which confirms everyone's suspicions. That's a really good one. Oh, here's a good one, which I mean, finally, and then it's something you don't need redundant or insane. So finally, doctors have introduced a new product that helps our nose hairs grow faster. Yep. Um, or there's, here's one that I love. So you can give me a setup cause that was a uh, card okay. that I gave you. Yeah, sure. Um, it was a deep freeze in many parts of Northeastern United States today. Even more impressive is that the deep freeze of Trump's blah, blah, blah is blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. Um, or it, like there and are. So just tell people what the transition phrase was. Uh, even more impressive. Even more, right. Uh, and then it's followed here on the list by even more amazing. Uh, I love some here too uh, that are not the positive setup, but the negative setup. So studies show Duanna is going to be on a beach when this podcast is released. Somewhat unpromisingly, blah, 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 blah. Right. Uh, you know, the beach is going to, I don't know, have a monsoon. Anyway, we could do this all night. There are, po but it's really, really interesting. Not just because uh, obviously we'll post this. There are over a hundred here, and you understand why she's able to write twenty jokes a day when she has this transition list in front of her. But one of the other things about comedy that I love the most is sometimes when you read a comedy script, uh, you will see that even in the produced script there are what's called alts. Yeah, and those are alternate jokes that just. If you want to go another way, here's another way to go with the joke or another punchline that might be as funny. Depending on the show or the production, you might record both versions and decide in the editing room or they might try out more than one. Some performers like a lot of alts on the same joke uh, and some want different ones, but this is a body of work that is partly comprised of alts. And sometimes when you're in a comedy room, that's a baby step for you is, hey, write a page of alts for this joke and this page. And they often don't get used, but it's an exercise to get you going and to get over your ego. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So in reading this mm -hmm. and looking at this, one of my other takeaways is that I don't have one. You don't have one what? I don't have one of these. Oh, but you do. You just don't know it. 
I bet. Well, then I don't know what it is and I won't be able to summon it when I am stuck, which is maybe why I'm stuck so often. (laughs) I bet that if you ran your site through an algorithmer or whatever, that it would tell you that, uh, you know, 41% of the time you start a paragraph with this or that or some phrase. I know mine and I start, uh, I often start with, listen, I blah, 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 but this article is so interesting that I had to write about it, something like that. Or I often do things like, and that's just the beginning. And then you go into sort of the second paragraph of whatever it is you're doing. In screenwriting, I, I know that I ask a lot of questions. Those are often, which is to say my characters ask a lot of questions of one another. Right. Often rhetorically. Okay. So you're just going to stand there? That that can do you a lot in a lot of scenes. Huh. Um, or, you know, you start really, there are rules, but there are some things that you employ more than others. A screenwriting rule is come in as late as possible to a scene. Right. I love to have people come into a scene and go, oh, sorry, I'll come back later. And then the people in the scene go, no, no, stay. Right. So it's all already happening, whatever has been the setup. You don't have the people walking in the door. So I do a lot of like, oh, sorry, I'll come back later. Um, And of course, the thing is you want to know that they work for you, but Mm -hmm. not be using them all the time, right? So that you don't become somebody boring. Yeah. What about when you are, uh, I hesitate to say performing, when you're hosting, what are your phrases or catchphrases that you find yourself going to? I think I do the okay a lot. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Like if I'm gonna about to disagree, mm-hmm. then there's a lot of like, okay. Right. That's your um, gentle sort of engineering of… Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I also do… But here's the thing. I was about to say, here's the thing. And here's the thing is on her list too. Right. Um, I will say that it's funny because on the site, I actively try not to, like for instance, a lot of transition writing is anyway, Mm -hmm. right? If I've gone off point, Mm -hmm. anyway, I actually try daily to limit my anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, it's not anyways, it's anyway. That's right. Everybody. Um. (laughs) Oh, I mean, if we're doing our Grammar Pet Peeves podcast, which I suspect this audience (laughs) would be very interested Uh in, I'm not going to go super off topic. I am going to say this and this only. Wary, weary, and leery. They're three different words. They have three different meanings. Learn it. Love it. Uh, I mean, listen, this could spin us off, so I'm just going to not pick you, pick up on what you're leaving. I'm so tempted, but yeah. So I try and limit my anyway, the plural of mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and there's a lot of that said now that you mention it, right? That said, and I try and limit those. So while yes, they show up on the daily, like word count, I'm trying not to go to them often. Of course. Yeah. And I think Part of the reason that Conan O'Brien or Saturday Night Live or you employ other writers is so that you don't rely all the time on those same phrases that you know come easily to you so that you keep it fresh. And I guarantee you that as much as she published this list of all her transitions, she also has a list of no-goes, of 
things that she won't do. There are a lot of sites, and I think there's a link here somewhere, um, of clams or jokes or joke constructions that a lot of shows outlaw, and every show has their own. Um, This list is kind of famous, but is very much uh, kind of the accepted list or part of the accepted list, which includes too soon or spoiler alert, blah, 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 or it's giving me all the feels or uh, what else? Are you having a stroke? I can't unsee that. Yep. I'll take blank for 500, Alex. The JJ? Yeah, gone. Nope, done. Who hurt you? God, I hate who hurt you. Stay classy. Yeah. I think we're done here. And, you know, I don't think this is on the list, but the that's all, Meryl Streep, Devil Wears Prada. Oh, right. That's all. That's all. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there are ones here that make their way into regular people's speech. I am very guilty of, wait, what? Because it makes people laugh still. But right. yeah, it's time to be done. Oh, I'm guilty of all of it. Like, I can't unsee that. Probably shows up on Laney Gossip at least once a week. So the reason I point this out, again, is because this is work too. Looking constantly at what you do and going, these, we use them too much. It's not fresh. We got to get them out of here. Um, And, you know, a lot of comedy rooms feel not because of broadcast standards, but because of creativity that swearing is lazy. And so you're encouraged to come up with a joke that doesn't involve profanity or saying fuck as a punchline, something that I'm sure I could train myself out of one of these days. Um, There's so much work that goes into getting other people to relax. And there's so much work that gets into just being like, we're just having a good time. We're just hanging out. I really, really think it's, it's underrated. I think comedy in itself, the work of comedy is underrated. And I would make a blanket statement and say that the comedians and stand-ups that I know are some of the hardest working people who are always working, working, working a joke. Oh, I mean, I'm picturing Sarah right now and wondering whether or not she's listening and yelling at us and being like, why am I not part of this conversation? Like, I mean, a lot of people have been arguing the same point that you've been arguing for a long time, like from the effortlessness that shows up on screen um, and how that almost belies the effort that goes into what is happening on screen to even the way prestige is defined, that if it makes you laugh, then we can't actually take it seriously, even though it is very serious, the work that goes into something you don't take seriously. I imagine it's the same reason that people who play basketball in their driveway think that they, you know, could like make a half court shot because they're like, it looks so easy or look when they dunk, it's so great. And it's like, no, it takes years upon years of precision work over and over. The difference being, I guess, that not everybody plays basketball, but everybody plays with language and everybody likes jokes and likes to laugh in whatever way. So they're playing with the tools that you already have. Whereas if you're five foot two, you know, you're, you're barking up a different tree. Right. Um, and yeah, it says here that Laurie Kilmartin, uh, is likely to run a set 
hundreds of times before she brings it onto Conan's show. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of times. That is working out every groove, every everything. I mean, look, I'll be honest with you. It is a bit of a regret of mine that I never tried a secret stand-up, even just once. Right. That worked out a set and tried out, you know, a five minutes at a Holiday Inn. I might do it secretly this year sometime. I'm well, not going to tell you. Good. I mean, <laughs> listen, it doesn't have to be, like, known. It's nope. just something you do. I, I always remember, um, I love your reaction to that now infamous Tiffany Haddish appearance on Jimmy Kimmel, and then she also did a follow-up one on Colbert. And the one on Kimmel, of course, was when she told the story of the Groupon and going using the Groupon to go on a swamp tour with Will Smith and Jada, right? Mm-hmm. And your first reaction to that was, she's fucking testing out material during her talk show appearances. Yes, She workshopped it because we heard her tell that story two or three more times and she leaned more on some things and the tercel and she took out other elements that didn't work it. She was working that material because that's how she came up as a stand-up and that's what they do. They work it over and over and over again. I, and this is, this, like, this reminds me of people I've come across where, uh, let's say that, um you go to a convention and there's a keynote speaker, right? Mm -hmm. They're writing their speeches. And in like a 20-minute speech or a 45-minute speech, a lot of these people will throw in a joke. Mm -hmm. And the joke is supposed to come off, of course, as a joke, like they just thought of it. Right. Very rarely did they just think of it. There are people who are very good off the cuff and, you know, they can do that. Um, But there are some people who judge – someone's speech for having a pre-inserted throwaway joke. And for those people who are out there, if the next time you're at a convention and you hear this, tell them to fuck off. Uh, Who is judging this and how many speeches are they giving? But the same people that you say, like, in their driveway play basketball and then think that they can make the 50, like, make the half-court shot. Right. I will say… obviously, that a skilled speech with zero jokes is still going to come off warmer and better and more off the cuff and casual than a stilted speech that is attempting to throw humor in there. You're always better off just being better first. Right. Throw the thing in if it works for you and if you really of course. want that. But yeah, uh, that sounds a lot like people who have never tried to do that kind of a thing. But my point here is that, like, you know, for the takeaway for real-life application, writing either for someone or for yourself in a public setting for you to deliver um, is a skill that we can all practice. And putting the effort into it, even in the lighter parts, is not something to be ashamed of. No, not at all. Well, I'm so glad you said that, even though it's going to make me go on for another minute. But… Yeah, putting effort into something that is supposed to look effortless is never, it's, you know, the province of sneering at that is sort of like laughing at a brown noser from when we were kids in school, but you will never regret it. That's the thing. You'll never regret working hard to get there faster. I was going to ask whether we shouldn't issue a challenge and the challenge, my challenge is this, 
write in somebody else's voice. You can write in the voice of, like, I love to do a Julia Roberts or an Oprah, as we know. Um, you can write in the voice of Iron Man. I don't care. You can write in our voices. I'm sure people would love to mock us. And you do not have to send them to us. We are not going to read your stuff if you don't want to. God, we will. If you want to send it, we'd love to. But tell us about the experience of writing or, you know, in the voice of your CEO or the weird nurse at the clinic that you always go to. Just see if you can pick up somebody else's cadence and what it helps you to do in the rest of your writing. I miss it a little now that you're like, I miss it. Now that we've been talking about this and you just assigned this, I actually do miss, because it has been a while since I've written for anybody other than myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was recently in a meeting where we were breaking down some ideas and we were conceiving of a story and we were trying to like flesh out a character. And that was great, fun work. It's imagining someone from scratch, really, and putting words in her mouth. Yeah. And it's a workout because you get to be somebody else. You also have to be somebody else. You question every uh, bias that you have and you question every time you say something, is this me, Duanna, saying this? Or is this a character saying this? Because the most boring characters of all, of course, are when they're all just avatars for the writer walking around with different names. Um, so it's always exciting. And the easiest way to find different voices is to picture the different ways that people in your real life speak. Here's my pitch too, for like yet another job, if I can get one and add one to the jobs I already have. Uh huh. I would, I'd love to be a speechwriter. Yeah. I bet you'd be really good at it. I, I'm a great speechwriter. I just wrote a speech for myself that I delivered <laughs> about a week ago. It was a kick-ass speech. Yeah. And I loved writing it. Mm-hmm. I wrote it on a plane or like at least 75% of the body and then it was like massaged for a few days afterwards. But it made me, it made, it got me a little bit, like it gave me a little bit of a, a kick, a, like some juice that I had been looking, maybe I've been looking for for a few months. Um, hey, so if you're out there, <laughs> so if you're out there, um, speech writing is a great job. And let me know if there's an opening. <laughs> I don't think you could hack the hours of 4 a.m. <laughs> on the flip side of 4 a.m. You wouldn't have gone to bed yet to revise the speech with the stumper who's but just so come down. so many people give bad speeches. Do you know what I mean? Like, fuck, I've had to sit through a lot. Well, I was going to say one more thing. If you are a medical researcher or you are, an, I don't know, an executive or you work in uh, as a docent and you don't spend a lot of time speaking, maybe you do if you're a docent. Give me a, give me a backroom museum job. You're an artifactist. Uh, I really think that people really like Toastmasters, uh, because you learn to speak, yes, and you're speaking on your own behalf, but also because it has its own assignments, you get a lot of at-bats. You can always try things, Mm -hmm. experiment. It's a relatively low-risk environment. So if some of this sounds attractive, but stand up at a holiday and does not, try going to something like a Toastmasters and see if it scratches uh, a different kind of itch for you. And consider sort of having imagination with your skill of writing if you already have it. And the reason this comes up is because I think about my students. So I last year taught at my alma mater, Western University. I taught a group of fourth year arts and humanities students, and they're all writers. 
They all know their literature. And afterwards, they, it surprised me what fields they were going in. So I had been reading all semester essays, beautifully written essays, artistic essays from these students. And afterwards, they were going into sciences. And they were going into the communications division of some forestry company or a mining company. And I realized that the reason why these forestry and mining companies, for example, had hired the arts students is because they need creative writers. Mm-hmm. Typically, the writing around those fields, which are very clinical and very technical, is very clinical and technical. And kind of stilted and not fun to read. That's right. Make your industry sexy. Absolutely. Because nobody knows it better than you. Mm -hmm. You tell us the guts of it. And writing, good writers can make… Look, these are important industries. I'm not undermining the value of them, but I'm just saying… Sorry, are you not undermining mining? Is that what you just said? I'm not undermining mining or forestry, but I'm just saying the presentation of them can sometimes be a little stayed. Mm -hmm. And so if you are in creative writing, if you graduated in arts, have imagination with where you can take that skill. You can sexy up these industries that definitely need a fucking kick in the ass in terms of like selling themselves. And, you know, we always talk about, oh, well, the real world application is this. I'm now going to take what you said and give the Hollywood application of that. Okay. Um, which is to say voice trumps all. Uh, the greatest thing about the internet, as far as I'm concerned, is all the scripts that are out there. And I read a script recently for a very early draft of one of Lena Waithe's television projects. And it was not my favorite script in terms of the material. It was not my favorite script in terms of you know, some of the jokes, some of the plot points. I was like, ah, I feel like this is at a different point in her career. But what comes through so strongly is her voice. Even though some of the stuff I was like, meh, not my favorite. I wanted to spend more time with that voice. And if you have that voice, if you develop that voice, then people will want to spend time with you and with your writing, which means you get the attention for your company, for your industry, in the way that it's desired. So don't feel that, oh, this is all about comedy, but I don't do stuff like that. A compelling voice will make people read anything. Well, this is fun. I mean, how many assignments did we assign? Upwards of 10? (laughs) We look forward to reading them if you want to send them to us. No pressure. You don't have to. Send us the diary of how it went, and then, you know, you bash your head on the piano like that guy on Sesame Street. Whatever. But we hope you enjoyed our mini episode on writing, comedy writing, but breaking it out to all kinds of writing. We definitely want to do more of these because we know that there are a lot of writers out there, aspiring writers out there. We're all writers. We're all telling stories. So if you like this, let us know and we might, you know, make this a semi-regular feature. And if there's some other element of work that you would love to hear a mini-sode on, we would love to tackle it. Hit us up, let us know on Instagram, on Twitter, all those good places. Thank you so much for listening. Write hard, work hard. We'll be back in a week. And of course, as always, uh, subscribe to our podcast where you get your podcasts, leave reviews, send us messages, and uh, we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 